the Roman Republic was making its last stand. But first, it had to figure out who was in charge. Not that it didn't have bigger problems. Pompey the Great, thinking the Civil War was over, failed to capitalize on his victory at the Battle of Dyrrhachium, allowing Julius Caesar all the time he needed to regroup so they could meet again at the Battle of Pharsalus in August of 48 BC. Pompey did not win the Battle of Pharsalus. After his crushing defeat, he retreated to Egypt, thinking he could get troops and money by picking a side in the ongoing incestuous power struggle between Cleopatra and her brother-husband, one of the last of the Ptolemaic kings. He picked the wrong side, and the Egyptians sent his severed head to Caesar, hoping that he would pick a side in the ongoing incestuous power struggle between Cleopatra and her brother-husband. Julius Caesar would indeed pick a side, but that is a train wreck for later. Cato the Younger was the best choice to lead the Republic's government in exile and military resistance to a would-be dictator. He had had a front-row seat to the bloody dictatorship of Cornelius Sulla, and had fought for the institutions of the Republic ever since. With no legions, no fortune, and no fame, he stood against the autocratic plans of military heroes, wealthy oligarchs, and the most famous men of the age. It was as if his entire life had prepared him for this moment. Unshaven, clothed in rags like a man in mourning, or an Old Testament prophet leading his people through the desert to the Promised Land, Cato led 10,000 of Pompey's surviving troops through the desert to Utica. But it was no Promised Land. The remaining leaders of the Roman resistance, Verus, the former provincial governor, Cato's old nemesis Metellus Scipio, and Pompey the Great's surviving sons were all squabbling over who was supposed to be in charge. Juba, the king of Numidia, was there as well with his cavalry. He personally hated Caesar from that one time when they met and Caesar pulled his beard. He also had his own agenda in North Africa that benefited mightily from a Roman civil war. While Rome was looking elsewhere, Juba could exploit their distraction to gain territory and eliminate rivals. The resistance to Julius Caesar had a fortified city in a difficult desert, tens of thousands of soldiers, an angry king and his army, and plenty of supplies. For a government in exile, they were doing pretty good. From this powerful base, with the legitimacy that Cato and Scipio conferred, they could have fought Caesar for years while they waited for his dictatorship to fail, as all dictatorships eventually do. But they wasted their time, their resources, their high moral ground, and their momentum on fighting over who got to be captain of this leaky ship. Not for nothing did Julius Caesar think he could beat them. Caesar was finding out that winning a decisive battle wasn't the same thing as ending a war. Territorial and political gains were nice, but they needed to be consolidated or they might just as easily be lost. For example, he had captured 24,000 of Pompey's men at Pharsalus, who now needed to be fed and supplied. They also needed to be watched, what with their loyalty to Caesar brand new and obtained at sword point. 
and the perennially in-debt Caesar needed money to pay everyone. For a good part of the known world, with Pompey the Great dead, Caesar found himself at the head of the Roman state, which came with new burdens. He landed in Egypt in pursuit of Pompey's fleeing forces, only to get caught up in the Alexandrian War, the aforementioned power struggle between the last descendants of the Ptolemaic royal dynasty. Quite a lot of Egyptians believe that his presence in Alexandria was the precursor to their country being absorbed as a Roman province. So Caesar, with pressing business elsewhere, found himself bogged down, cut off from help, with most of what he had thought was a friendly country mad at him. He spent months fighting a war he never intended, and when it was over, exhausted from nearly two years of campaigning and seduced by Cleopatra, Caesar took three months off. He was in his early fifties by then, and had been fighting constantly since he crossed the Rubicon in 49 BC. Pompey's defeat and death eliminated his only remaining rival for power. Surrogates like Mark Antony, he believed, were taking care of business in Rome. In October of 48, two months after his victory at Pharsalus, Caesar was appointed dictator for a year. He surely felt like he could take some time off. And he must have known that the Republic's North African stronghold was in no shape to take him on, locked as they were in the debate over who got to be in charge. It should have been Cato. His experience as a soldier, his tenure in Roman politics, his unimpeachable moral character, and his role as the conscience of the Republic made him an inspired and inspiring choice. The other men vying for power at Utica wanted many things, victory, glory, wealth, and power. Cato only wanted one thing, the restoration of the Republic. Desperate Last Stand Safety Tip, number 257. The guy in charge needs to be good at keeping everyone's eye on the ball. The problem was, of course, that Cato only wanted that one thing. He wanted the Republic restored, but he didn't necessarily want to be in charge of it. He nominated Metellus Scipio, the same guy who had run off with the girl Cato had wanted to marry when he was younger, and the one who had beaten him in an election for Praetor. Way to commit to the cause, Cato. Metellus didn't have much going for him, except that he had once been a consul, and was as a result the highest-ranking Roman official in the city. Being a descendant of the famed general Scipio Africanus, the one who had defeated Hannibal, also helped, since the troops believed that only a Scipio could bring them victory in Africa. Here again was a fine example of Cato's chickens coming home to roost. It was Metellus's willingness to ally himself with Pompey that led to all the honors he now held. Pompey had engineered Metellus's defeat of Cato in the election for Praetor, which led to Metellus's consulship that now put him at the head of the operation in Utica. If Cato had been less of a stubborn stick in the mud where Pompey was concerned, he would have had the political eminence to take charge in Utica, where a man like him was sorely needed. Cato was practical, frugal, an able administrator, 
and an accomplished soldier. Metellus had a famous last name. His first move after taking over Utica was to order the city burned to the ground. Whoops. Are you a fan of in-depth conversations on a wide variety of subjects? Then you need to head out on the open highway. I'm Eric Erickson. I bring my crazy career and interests in a variety of subjects to the show. And since I seem to know, well, a little bit about everything, it's just enough to get me into trouble. The open highway is like going on a road trip and meeting all different sorts of people. It's that old idea of sitting at that diner counter, having coffee, and talking with folks with completely different backgrounds. One episode might be a political operative, the next a professional wrestler, and the next a philosopher. Just having good old-fashioned conversation. If it's interesting to me, I'm sure it'll be interesting to you too. The Open Highway. New episodes every Tuesday and Thursday. Get them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The desert city of Utica had been around for a long time, longer even than Rome. Its people were the descendants of Phoenician traders and had no real allegiance to Rome, which was just the latest in a long line of overlords wanting tax money. Caesar was winning, so far, and he had promised the business-minded inhabitants of Utica favorable concessions if they threw open the gates when he got there and surrendered. Metellus decided that the best way to prevent the city and its people from going over to the dictator was to set it on fire and execute all the potential collaborators. Juba, the Numidian king, was also a fan of this plan, which would remove a powerful outpost from his backyard. Metellus became convinced that a purge of their local allies and the complete destruction of their stronghold was their smartest move. He was, clearly, not the best man for the job. Cato argued for the city to be spared, since it was their only defensible stronghold, and Caesar was, as mentioned, purportedly on his way to town. The grateful citizens of Utica sent a delegation to Metellus, demanding that Cato be made governor. Metellus handed the city over to him. Now that he was in charge, Cato transformed the city into an armed camp, stockpiling supplies and building towers along the walls. It would take a long siege to capture the city, and he knew that the longer they could keep Caesar at bay, the more likely he was to give up. Time was on Cato's side. Caesar had a million and one things on his plate and could not be away for too long. And it wasn't like Caesar's North Africa campaign was fighting a foreign enemy, or adding valuable territory to Rome. He was there to kill or capture Cato the Younger, and the grandson of the legendary general Scipio Africanus, and the sons of Pompey the Great, along with thousands of Roman citizens. For a guy who crafted his public image and reputation so carefully, the Utica campaign was a bad look for him. He needed to take the city quickly and let the final act of the Civil War fade into memory. His hold on power was new and tenuous. The longer this whole thing dragged out, and the more successful Cato was at thwarting him, the odds that Caesar's supporters might switch sides increased. 
time ended every dictatorship. Cato had waited out Cornelius Sulla. He believed he could wait out Julius Caesar. Metellus Scipio, that wannabe arsonist and executioner, was placed in charge of the army, since the men believed only a Scipio could win in Africa. Cato, ever the pragmatist, didn't put his faith in superstition and made sure the army had everything it needed. An account written by one of Caesar's followers read, Cato, who commanded in Utica, was daily enlisting freedmen, Africans, slaves, and all that were of age to bear arms, and sending them without intermission to Scipio's camp. The Republicans were even able to launch raids on Sicily and Sardinia, capturing more weapons and supplies to aid their cause. They were as ready as they would ever be to face the army Caesar was going to bring to Africa. And then, Caesar's army mutinied. We couldn't keep train wrecks on the tracks without you. Please visit support.historystrainwrecks.com for all the ways you can help keep train wrecks on the tracks. Julius Caesar had four legions near and dear to his heart. The ones that had fought with him in Gaul and had gone all the way to Britain and made him the ruler of the known world at the Battle of Pharsalus. They were the soldiers who had helped make him a great general and dictator. He had left them in Italy while he gallivanted with Cleopatra. They had been promised discharge from the service and back pay and land on which to live out their retirement. But since Pharsalus, Caesar had been paying them with indefinite promises. They rioted just as he was returning to pick them up for a quick trip to North Africa to smash that one last rebellious holdout. Caesar walked into the middle of the riot alone to address his men. He reminded them of their long service together and the guarantees he had made them. He told them they would get all he had promised. Knowing he needed experienced men for his campaign against Utica, thinking it would back their general into a corner, the legions asked to be discharged. So he discharged them. Caesar always took huge risks, from borrowing vast sums of money to support his political career, to his campaigns in Gaul against barbarian hordes, to taking on Establishment Rome's army, even when he was outnumbered two to one. Calling his soldiers citizens, he released them from service. Stunned by the dismissal, the soldiers began demanding he take them back, guaranteeing him victory in Africa. But Caesar saved his best performance for his best legion, the 10th. He told the assembled troops that he would take them all back into his army, except the 10th legion. The 10th demanded to be readmitted to service, offering to let Caesar execute every 10th man, decimation, as punishment for their insubordination. He relented, and now he had a motivated, supremely loyal army at his back. It was high time to go to Africa. On our next episode, we watch as the question of whether only a Scipio could win a war in Africa is answered when Caesar defeats the last Republican army at the Battle of Thapsus in 47 BC. Cato the Younger, seeing only one way out, 
and only one way to deny Caesar the fiction of being the savior of the Republic he wanted so badly, takes it. In death, Cato becomes a legend Caesar cannot kill. At long last, he finds a way to defeat the dictator once and for all. Stay tuned for Stubborn Nags of Ancient Rome, Part 14.